Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Christian Jarrett. He's a deputy editor of Psych and an author. Most people believe that they are their personalities, that it's an immutable, unchanging, central part of them as a person. But psychologists and neuroscientists have been studying the science of personality change for many years and have uncovered strategies to nudge your personality in the direction you want. Expect to learn why most personality tests are basically useless, how genetically heritable our personalities are, just how much of a change we can make from where we start off, how to stop being so shy or introverted, the best strategies to become more ambitious and conscientious, the most effective ways to maintain personality change, and much more. Don't forget that you might be listening, but not subscribed. And if that's the case, you're going to miss episodes when they are uploaded. So head to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening and press the subscribe or the follow button. It'll make me very happy indeed. It supports the show and it means that you're not going to miss episodes. I thank you. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash modern. That's netsuite.com slash modern to get your own KPI checklist today. If you want more focus in your life, or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not, because I do too which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including Cognizin for focus, Panax Ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtonic.com slash modernwisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C dot com slash Modern Wisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christian Jarrett. Christian Jarrett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Now, the topic that I know you came to talk about is post-ejaculatory adaptations to self-semen displacement, a study that I recently read. And I've found in this, contrary to the prevailing view, 
Male sexual jealousy accounts for more cases of family violence, e.g. spouse and child abuse, than social class, poverty, alcohol, or drug addiction combined. This was shared by Rob Henderson the other day. High level. <laughs> what, are your, what are your thoughts on post-ejaculatory adaptations to self-semen displacement? Wowzers. <laughs> that's yeah that that's the most uh left field question i've had uh, i would say um oh yeah well you know what men are like yeah jealousy probably accounts for a lot of um bad personality change I would absolutely say. well I think as well like one of the things that men are pretty hardwired to avoid is being cooked right you know to raise somebody else's child so i guess that yeah, yeah. the jealousy must be tuned up a little bit more in that regard for men yeah i mean more seriously i guess there is a, an evolutionary thread that runs through you know a lot of the personality research and um these kind of you know you get there are sec important sex differences in personality and that kind of thing you know to do with the uh, average gender differences in some of the traits and yeah, the kind of thing you're talking about, you know, aggressiveness and competitiveness and, and so on. So it does tie in uh, loosely in, in some ways. We've looped it back around. All right. So what do you mean when you talk about personality? Well, uh, the, the way I uh, approach it is the the way it, it is covered in personality, uh, in, in psychological science by personality researchers. So that like the formal uh, approach, which is so personality is our it's a combination of our habits of thought, uh, feeling the way we relate to other people. And you can measure these these tendencies with the big five model of personality. So that that's kind of that basically that's what I mean by it in, in this book that I wrote. Um, I took the scientific route. You know, there are other models like the Myers-Briggs that kind of thing there are some of these uh, and even more you know wackier ones than that that are less scientific uh, but what I mean by it is those ingrained behavioral tendencies and um, like a, a favorite way that personality researchers have of describing it is that uh, you can tell what's your personality because it's how you behave without putting any effort into it you know so if, if an extrovert a strong extrovert walks into a room, uh, they don't think to themselves, right, I better make an effort to start chatting to the people in the room, that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's just how they act because it's, it's how they are. How woo or unscientific are most of the other personality measures and other elements? If big five is what personality is, then what's attachment theory or what's Myers-Briggs or that red blue green <laughs> thing uh yeah they're, they're pretty woo because i mean um they don't have that uh scientific robustness so the, the the problem with them is i mean on the plus side a lot of them are very popular engaging they're fun so you're getting people thinking about personality they're thinking about their behavior and how they relate to other people that kind of thing so that's on the plus side the problem with a lot of these other approaches is uh, you do the test one day and do it again the next day and you get a different score that, you know, that kind of thing, you know, so that they just don't hold up to much scrutiny. That's, that's part of the problem. What's the difference between personality and mood then? So mood is, it's over the short term. So you're, you know, a, a mood state is a, is a state. So it's a transient uh, condition. P 
personality very much that's probably something i should have said in the definition is, is something that very much plays out over the long term so we all have our moments where we're lazy no matter how kind of conscientious we are you know we'll all have lazy moments no matter how uh, highly we score in agreeableness you know we're all gonna have we're all gonna have our grumpy days and not be short-tempered so everyone everyone has these little fluctuations but the key thing with personality is if you if you keep doing the measures over the long term you see these tendencies and they're meaningful tendencies you know as we really know you know intuitively we know that we know that off you know we've got some friends who are chattier than others or we've got some friends who are uh you know um more idle or whatever it might be so uh personality is like mood smeared across time then exactly and it i mean i do think the this is something i explore in the book is these uh, sort of short-term influences interact with our personality. So that there is this kind of malleability to personality. And of course, the little, these little influences day by day can accrue, they can accumulate. And I do think they're important, you know, it's worth paying attention to them uh, because uh, obviously as the, the case I make is that personality isn't set in stone. So um, it can slowly shift, you know, like an like an oil tanker. It can be gradually shifted, but uh, yeah, these the momentary changes are yeah things like mood or, or emotional state, that kind of thing. How much does personality matter for the outcomes that we get in life? I would say absolutely hugely. Um, I mean, it, personality traits; these big five traits correlate with all sorts of important outcomes. You know, whether it's longevity career success, uh, relationship success or versus difficulties, um, your health, uh, so many different things, your physical and mental health. It, and they often, many studies will show that the, the, the big five trait scores are as influential as or even more influential than other things that people might think of, such as family background, economic background, uh, amount of education, yeah, that, that kind of thing. So they're they are, it, it's hugely important. There, there was one study, one of my favorites, that was focused on trait neuroticism. And it, that they, um, they calculated like, in terms of happiness, if you can help people achieve um, a fairly uh, modest uh, reduction in their trait neuroticism, then in terms of happiness, it's equivalent of, a, of an increase in your income to over $300,000 a year. So just to get some kind of handle on if you can achieve these real genuine shifts in some of your trait scores, uh, it's going to make a difference to your life. And probably a little bit easier than trying to earn an extra $300,000 a year. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So getting down to a, a biological or a neuroscientific level, what's, what's personality there? Is, is it just like myelin sheets running through the brain what's going on <laughs> yeah because it, it can see, seem sometimes a little bit i suppose willy and subjective you know but um again these these big five traits they correlate with some uh significantly with some very meaningful uh physiological parameters suggesting that um personality the one way of putting it is that it gets under the skin so for example, people higher in neuroticism, which basically means you're uh, less emotionally stable and less emotionally resilient, uh, they have less folding in their brain 
um, less surface area in parts of the brain that are involved in emotion regulation, for example. You find that people who score higher in conscientiousness, you know, how self-disciplined they are, orderly, ambitious, that kind of thing, they have, um, I mean, one study looked at levels of cortisol in the hair, like, because you can measure cortisol in the hair. People who score higher on a personality test in conscientiousness, they have lower cortisol in their hair. And cortisol is a hormone related to stress and inflammation and that kind of thing. So these kind of more objective measures, um, the the gut microbiome is another one that correlates with um, some of these big five traits, you know, whether you have kind of uh, healthy, more healthy gut bacteria or less healthy blood pressure, heart rate, you know, quite a lot of these things, they correlate with these big five traits suggesting, you know, there is like this objective component to it. Mm, So it's not just uh, learned behaviors. It's not just habits and routines. People have predispositions um, physiologically that are gearing them toward being a particular style. But I imagine that there must be multiple different ways to achieve certain personality types. So somebody could be uh, high neuroticism because of that folding uh, element, or maybe they have uh, more uh, cortisol receptors, perhaps. Uh, Maybe there's a ton of different ways that could be contributed to that biologically. Then it could be learned behavior. Maybe it was past trauma. Maybe it's to do with attachment. Maybe it's to do with upbringing. Maybe it's to do with whatever. So it's kind of the same way as uh, I had Robert Plowman on the show, and he was talking about the uh, heritability of weight. And he was saying that he naturally gets quite fat, but mentioned that there's lots of different ways to be fat. You could be fat because your ghrelin response is downregulated, so you don't actually know when you're full and satiated that well. Maybe you have an aversion to exercise. Maybe you require more sleep than most people, so you're more sedentary. Maybe like the point being that you can reach the same state uh, in terms of presentation as other people whilst coming to it from a very different place. Is that right to say or wrong? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a there's a strong genetic component to our personality traits, you know, which tapping into some of those biological processes, you know, that you you, you were mentioning. Uh, but it's about fifty. It accounts for about fifty percent of the vari- variation that you see in personality between people. So you've got that leaves obviously a large chunk shaping us for our via our experiences, our, our relationships the environment that we're raised in and, and all these things and continues they, these factors continue to play a role through life and those you know sort of physiological parameters that i mentioned that are connected to the traits i think you have a you know you've got you've got a two-way feedback loop so if you're in poor health or if, if you don't pay if you don't pay attention to you know your fit physical fitness and so on there are studies suggesting that is going to have a harmful influence on your personality traits. How so? Things like lack of sleep, um, smoking, these kind of things are correlated with, uh, you know, longitudinal studies show further down the line, you see these kind of harmful effects on the trait, on, on, on personality traits. What which because, trait in particular? Neuroticism? Uh, neuroticism, uh, particularly... Um, conscientiousness, open-mindedness, you know, uh, they will suffer um, extroversion as well with with uh, smoking. Extroversion will tend to go down because it affects 
habits like smoking affect our ability to enjoy reward, you know, other, other forms of reward. So you, these um, behaviors or, you know, things like our, our diet, our sleep habits, our fitness uh, routine, you know, habits, lifestyle, like I guess you might say, they uh, affect some of the, you know, our underlying physiology that is relevant to personality traits. Yes. And it's this so you, constant yeah, so feedback. You, yeah exactly yeah i mean that's part of what i you know the message i try and convey in the book is a sort of trying to hack some of these feedback loops um that exist in our between personality and biological biological uh processes and and the kind of lives we lead you know kind of trying to hack into the the, the these dynamics these circles there's a, a guy from Stanford, Andrew Huberman, I uh, had him on the show a couple of months ago, and he was talking about how he prefers to try and change the mind with the body rather than with the mind. And I think that that kind of gets to this um, physiological interdependence between the way that you feel, the things that you think, the habits you have, the routines that you follow, the way that you show up, what you do with your body, and all of these things are, are loops. And this is as well, Peterson was on the show at the start of this year, and he was talking about... Um, <coughs> Uh, how people accuse Pareto principle distributions of, of um, well-being or wealth or whatever. Uh, they sort of point the finger at capitalism and say, look at these evil capitalists doing this. And he says, well, almost all of the rivers have almost all of the water. Almost all of the stars have almost all of the mass. Like th these kind of Matthew principles just play out. Like this is just the way that it happens. And you can see it happening here as well. If somebody starts smoking that means that it's going to be more difficult for them to do this and that and the other. And it just helps to continue to push them down. And mm. the reverse is true as well. And you see these trajectories of people just start to split apart because the person that yeah. has good habits engenders more good habits, which gives them better results, which reinforces the good habits and da, 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 <laughs> all yeah, the way yeah. up. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a lot of, I think, exploiting the research into personality change is recognizing that setting things in motion in the right direction and stopping them spiraling downwards. Um, yeah, you, you, you might be aware of, you know, these kind of studies, they came out of, um, Dunedin in New Zealand, these very long-term studies where they, they actually looked at kids, uh, temperament, you know, from a very young age and yeah, child, children, you know, with lower self-control, which is related to when we're, adults which are related to trait conscientiousness you know the kids with lower self-control they are far more likely to grow up to be the adults who are going to you know going to be unemployed going to have poor health and so on and so forth so that uh, i know the you know one criticism is that that is pinning the blame on the individual rather than um acknowledging circumstances but it is also empowering because these things aren't set in stone so if, you know it, it opens the door to an early intervention and it opens the door to us taking control of some of these uh, factors ourselves by ch deliberately changing ourselves, thinking more consciously and deliberately about, you know, what we do with our lives and where we put ourselves, the situations we put ourselves in as well. Didn't you look at another study, like the longest longitudinal personality study ever done where people were rated by teachers in school and then were tested again at 70? And that showed that there was a lot of change between the personalities. So what does it mean to talk about personality at all? Like, like, doesn't that kind of undo 
what we just said about the fact that people that don't have so much self-control later in life, like if the, if the personality isn't consistent throughout life, then why would anything in early life be predictive of stuff later in life? Yeah, w one thing to say about that study, that was a Scottish study, and I think it was the longest ever, was it, it was focused on one sort of tiny part of personality, well, it was related to conscientiousness, but it, I mean, it had a number of um, flaws, that study. So I, I did highlight it because of the dramatic finding that there wasn't a correlation between the, the scores in childhood and the scores in, like you say, they were about 70 something. Um, but I mean, there were a few flaws. So the, the, the childhood ratings were done by teachers, I think. And uh, whereas when they were in their 70s, they like rated themselves and, and stuff. But um, I mean, what what the experts usually say is, the like the rank order uh so like you know if you were towards the quieter end in your class in your group when you're at school you'll probably although you will, will all um shift through life because there are these kind of maturity effects through life um you'll probably still be you know towards the lower end uh e even if you're whole class has shifted on like extroversion mm. you'll probably still be in the sort of the same rough, roughly the same rank um there, there was another recent study i think it looked over 50 years um comparing personality uh scores with the same group of people you know with a, with a 50 year gap and uh they looked at 10 different traits you know rather than just the sort of the one and i think they they found 98% of the uh, participants showed meaningful change on at least one of the, the 10 traits. Um, so there were, so that obviously there, there, there were other traits, you know, that showed some stability. It's this mixture of, um, and I, I tried to deal with this in the book, like trying to get, you know, get across. It's not, it's not set in stone, but it's, uh, it's relatively stable. Um, but there is some change as well. So it is meaningful. Personality is meaningful while not being totally fixed. Yeah, so the best analogy, and there's lots of similarities, I think, between personality and what I learned about behavioral genetics, just because there's that kind of set point and a, yeah. a, an amount of um, existing uh, direction and then also the stuff and the change that you can make with regards to environment or personal choice. And uh, Plowman says, um, genetics do not predetermine, but they do predispose. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like that highlights the personality thing. All right, so is it right to say that who we are is our personalities? And if that's the case, what does it mean to change the personality? Does that mean that we're like not accepting ourselves? Does that mean that <laughs> we're changing who we are, the, the, the existential gap between Chris's personality and Chris himself? Mm. Yeah, so it, it, start, it can start to get quite philosophical, can't it? Yeah, about like well, what makes us us. And um, I wanted to, yeah, I mean, I, I delved into this stuff because I wanted to know how much we can really change for the better. You know, I'd been covering psychology and neuroscience for so many years, writing about cool new studies and so on. And I, this was something I kind of kept coming back to. Like, does any of this stuff really work long term? And I suppose that's personality provided, I thought provided an excellent frame for that because it's kind of getting you know, really deep down. It's not just changing habits. It's not just changing your routines. It's really, these are your, as we were just discussing, you know, relatively long lasting, uh, stable traits. Can we change those? Um, 
So it is, it's a very important part of who we are. It's one way of capturing what makes us us. I wouldn't say it is everything. Um, uh, other things, you know, that are an important part of who we are are things like our, our morals, uh, our values, you know, um, in some ways, I would say our relationship, you know, the, the, the relationships that we hold dear, that are meaningful to us, that is a key part of who we are. So we can change our personality, but still love and care about the same people. You know, we can change our personality, but still have the same core values, still believe in the same priorities and principles in life. Um, other aspects of ourself, you know, that I, I encountered, you know, uh, researching this stuff was, you know, like this, all the, the stories, the story we tell about our lives in, in a way is a part of who we are. And of course it can be told different. You can tell your own story in different ways. And that is that you've probably heard there's a form of therapy and like narrative therapy. And a lot of that is about helping people tell their story differently and that, and thereby actually change in a way, change themselves or how they, f what they feel like, you know, to themselves. Um, so yeah, I, I, it isn't every these personality traits aren't everything. They're very, very important part of who we are, but they're not not everything. I suppose the interesting thing about personality is it's so inextricable from the way that we present for pretty much everything else. So our relationships and the story that we tell mm -hmm. ourselves and the values and virtues and integrity that we hold are all influencing and being influenced by the natural set point that we have like our predisposition what is it yeah. that we are tending toward so i guess it seems it seems to me the way that i'm kind of framing it is it's like the foundation or the source code or the the set point the beginning that everything is coming off of is our personality and then what you want to try and do is be swimming downstream you want to try and get yourself to a stage where your personality makes having the kind of life that you want to have more easy as opposed to you being some incredibly unconscientious person that has dreams and goals and aspirations to go and make something better of yourself. And you go, well, hang on a second. I have this desire and yet something in me isn't allowing me to manifest that desire. Like that, that sucks. So it's got to be a case that it is again, like this completely interdependent um, link between the two. It, it definitely is because, you know, if, you know, like if any of your listeners, for example, are, you know, frustrated, in their careers or something like that, you know, they're finding it really hard to get motivated. Obviously, one thing they can do is start to try and uh, enhance their trait conscientiousness. There are various ways of doing that. That's something they can do that, you know, they can work on themselves from the inside out, try and change that key personality trait. But it's very important to recognize that actually when people find themselves in a job or um, find a passion that really, um, uh, you, you know, sets them on fire, really, you know, uh, satisfies them. Um, and it, it feeds back and increases trait conscientiousness. You know, it's much easier to be conscientious if you're in a job that you enjoy and that you care about. Yeah. <laughs> so you're absolutely right. It's this interdependence again. Yeah. I was a club promoter for most of my 20s and was pretty obsessed with work and, and trying to gain success and also just grow the business because it was something that I felt like I had a lot of um, 
personal investment in like I, my sense of self-worth and the self the, the success of the business were kind of uh, pretty closely linked and i remember thinking i got toward the end of my 20s and i started learning about leverage which is this concept whereby you can use capital labor code or media in order to magnify your effects out into the world and i wasn't doing that i was running club nights right there was no leverage there really it's like look for one person that came in one person came in it wasn't that i ran the club night once and then could run it like uh, command C, command V, and then it would just run for the rest of time. We always had to be there, blah, blah, blah. So it was low levels of leverage. And I was learning about leverage at a time when my uh, motivation was waning a little bit within the business. And I remember thinking, oh, fuck, like I've, I've spent the fuel that I had of that kind of obsessive passion, that super conscientious grind and drive. And I've spent it on something which I really, really value. And I love what I achieved with the business but there wasn't a massive amount of leverage there. So maybe I've missed out on the opportunity to maximize this particular part of, of the drive that was in me. Mm. And then whatever, four or five years hence now doing the show. And because I get such positive feedback and the dopamine from the show is just insane. I've now rediscovered that same degree of drive and conscientiousness and obsession that has been fed back to me by another new project. But this time it's with leverage. And it's, it, I remember thinking, it was just an interesting insight that I've not spoken about before that I thought I'd not wasted because I didn't waste it at all. And I adore the work that I did and it was very successful and fulfilled me. But I, I was concerned that I'd kind of spent all of the, the fuel tank that was there. Mm. And I saw in front of my own eyes what happens when the environment re-enables and like re-kickstarts that capacity for super, super, super high conscientiousness. Yeah, so I think it, in an alternative reality, a version of reality, if you hadn't made that big career change, I think what the research would predict is um, there is a risk. You're, you, like you say, you, you had a lot of motivation, you were very organized and driven, but obviously something was, uh, the reward was diminishing maybe or, or, or whatever, as you were describing. If you hadn't made that, I guess, ambitious shift, there's a risk you could have, you might have seen uh, your conscientiousness. Your per it might have started to adversely affect your personality. Basically, <laughs> basically mm, is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what what um, does it mean to say adversely affect our personality? Is that uh, are there preferable personality states that people should want to be in? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit uh, tactless to use that kind of language. <laughs> But um, it's hard to dispute some of these links between something like conscientiousness, because higher conscientiousness is associated with so many preferable outcomes in life. So it's a little bit, whilst not wanting to be judgmental of people who are low in the trait, you know, it's it's hard, it would be hard to advocate for lower low conscientiousness, conscientiousness <laughs> because um, you know you're likely to have worse health, worse career prospects. There, you can go too far with conscientiousness. You know, it can potentially slip into sort of obsessive, unhealthy perfectionist tendencies. But um, exactly what you're describing is these, you know, these roads that we travel down or these situations we find ourselves in in life, they are all the time, you know, kind of feeding back and shaping us. And yeah, being aware of these influences. And um, I think one of the techniques I describe in the book, it's, it's from um, the personality psychologist Brian Little, and he he calls it um, personal project analysis. I think that's what he calls it. 
And it's all about actually taking the time, sit down, reflect on all the, you know, the various personal projects you have from the really big ones, like running, uh, you know, a, a, a nightclub, um, to more trivial things, like maybe being on a diet or whatever it might be, like going through them all, checking out, you know, like, am I making progress on this particular personal project? Is it making me feel happy? What kind of effect is it ha having on me? Uh, and being a little bit brutal and looking through and saying, should I drop some of these personal projects? Because they're, they're, they're not making my life any better. So I should drop them, pivot, try something else. And um, sounds like that's what you did. <laughs> have, you, have you considered why having different personality types amongst humans would be adaptive on a tribal ancestral civilizational level? Oh yeah. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of, you know, research on that kind of thing. Uh, because there's, you know, animals have personalities as well. So there's a lot of, um, there's actually quite a lot of personality research with animals and you can see basically, you know, like we we were saying about the set point that we kind of via our genetic inheritance and so on that we begin with, our, our personality disposition, if you like, that we start out with is a little bit like our own niche or our own kind of strategy. So while um, there are a lot of advantages, for example, to being more extroverted, you, extroverts tend to be bolder, uh, you know, they're more likely to get the, uh, on, on the hunt, you know, they're more likely to get the lion's share of, of the hunt, the kill. Um, they're more likely to uh, you know, find a mate uh, to reproduce with, that kind of thing. There's, there's also a niche, an adaptive adva ad advantage niche for the person who is a little bit uh, more cautious, who hangs back, who looks out for danger. Uh, so it, it, for a lot of these things, there's, there's usually, um, you can see some pros and cons depending on where you kind of, where you sit on the continuum with some of these traits. And e even if for the majority of people, it's better to be one way, you can sometimes see, oh, well, there's, um, you know, there, there's an advantage over here for a minority of people who might be uh, you know, different, you know, whether, whether it's being a little bit more wary or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Especially across uh, an entire group size of a tribe or something, I'm going to guess as well. You know, if you've got, I, I learned this about uh, psychopaths. I asked about how, how psychopathy uh, sticks about. I was like, look, if you've got a Dunbar number of 100 or 150 or something, why are they not all just killed? Like, and if there's a, a strong genetic component to this, why are they not all just killed? And the guy that I was speaking to said, well, kind of, but also if you're a Viking tribe and you want to send a raiding party across to Lindisfarne for the, them to go and fuck up some Geordies in whatever, uh, uh, 1000 BC or <laughs> uh, 1000 AD it yeah. makes sense to have some psychopaths so it's actually adaptive and i guess it's yeah. kind of the same here that if yeah. everybody was super conscientious and super extroverted and super whatever yeah. whatever what we would consider to be more preferable states no one's actually going to be saying hang on do we actually think that this is a good idea maybe we should sit back maybe we should consider mm -hmm. this that and the other uh, and yeah across an entire population it does make sense and then also our desires yeah. around other people you know i i, I I'm more attracted to friends that are a little bit more um, introverted than a super extrovert. Like if I, if I find it exhausting to be around people that are incredibly extroverted all of the time. I'm much more comfortable around people that are a little bit calmer, a little bit more peaceful. So 
that there you go that immediately mm. I, if i'm the demand and they're the supply like there is a demand supply problem for me to find someone that's a little bit less extroverted yeah yeah absolutely and you, you could even take a trait like maybe that isn't you know so obvious because it's not so much to do with like fighting and aggression and boldness and uh, something like um openness to experience that which is one of the big five so people who are uh, you know more open to experience they are um you know they don't like sticking to convention and rules they like doing things different you know being more um yeah uh, yeah <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah so uh, yeah on a political front you know uh, conservatives tend to score lower in openness to experience but as you were saying like on a kind of tribal level it's good to have a mixture because if everybody scored highly in openness to experience which comes with many advantages openness to experience you know it's related to creativity among other things uh, but if everybody was high in openness to experience, you would have, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't have anyone following the rules. Yeah, you wouldn't have be anyone no order. Pa- yeah, there'd be no order. You wouldn't have anyone passing down the tribal conventions and the higher respecting the hierarchy and that kind of thing. So, as, as you say, there's balance on a group level. It make, makes sense. Yeah, we've used the word extroversion a bunch of times because that's one of the elements within the Big Five. But that's not the same as being extroverted or introverted. Uh, can we just unpack that and how introversion and extroversion kind of uh, manifest within personality? Because I think for a lot of people, when we talk about personality, one of the things that they might be interested in is how do I become uh, less anxious or more outgoing or more socially confident, stuff like that, especially mm-hmm. in 2022. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh in in the big five trait theory, it's it's extra it's trait extroversion basically, and it's a continuum. So we're all on it somewhere. We will score somewhere on extroversion. The talking about introverts and extroverts is kind of not so scientific in a way. It's because uh, you know where where is the cutoff point? It's a short it's a shorthand for uh, in personality science, a kind of shorthand for someone who scores highly on extroversion and an introvert, someone you know who scores towards toward lower. I, sorry, I thought. Is extroversion not to do with uh, like valence to positive experience or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, that, that's an uh, that's an important difference from how we use the term in kind of colloquially, um, because yeah, colloquially we tend to think it's just about being chatty and and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, importantly in in scientific terms, ex- extroverts. One key thing about extroverts is that they're very much driven to achieve reward. That they they're very much drawn to reward. They and positive emotion. So they seek out um, positive emotion. It's probably one of the reasons why they are more socially active because they're looking for that, uh, the reward of that social kick, you know, and um, they tend to be more optimistic extrovert. So, it, uh, you know, if you're a high scorer, scorer on extroversion, um, tend to be more optimistic, more active. Extroverts are actually more active. They're more like, um, exploratory in a way seeking out reward looking for that reward introverts are less responsive to positive rewards they're less seeking stimulation it's like their baseline levels of arousal uh they're happy with uh they're chill seekers you know rather than thrill seekers Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's interesting i like that distinction um what about what so we've spoken about the fact that we can change personality what are the stickiest bits of personality what are the things that are the most difficult to change well um 
I would say it's all, it's all quite different. I wouldn't, I don't think any personality change is really easy because as I was saying earlier, it's, it's more than just tweaking, you know, quitting some bad habits and forming some new ones for, to achieve lasting personality change. I mean, personality is sticky. So you've, um, you've really got to go, you know, invest for the long haul. So you, you've got to do things, you've got to make changes and start behaving differently. And there are various ways to, you know, to, to, to do that, that uh, I, I, we, we might want to cover. Um, you've got to, you've got to uh, practice these techniques and strategies and make these changes in your life at a pretty rigorous and radical level, really. Um, in terms of like what's, I mean, probably, I, I'm guessing, I don't actually know if some traits are harder than others, but I'm, ge- I'm guessing neuroticism, as in, uh, yeah, like, as I was saying, that emotional instability is probably the one people struggle with the most. And I only say that because when people are asked what part of the personality they would most like to change, that is the most popular change that comes up in surveys. People wish they were not so emotionally unstable they they crave uh emotional stability and uh contentment i guess (laughs) yeah well i mean it makes sense that in a self-report the things that people struggle to change the most would be the things that would come up first yeah and i also guess that there's maybe a kind of like a self-defeating element to neuroticism the fact that having a high susceptibility to negative emotion would make downstream from that a lot of the changes that you're trying to enact more difficult. Mm. So it's kind of w- one of the uh, Matthew principle problems that we mentioned earlier on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking from experience, I would say, yeah, I, I person personally, I would say I find dealing with changing neuroticism the hardest and something for people to be mindful of if they kind of embark on trying to change some of their traits is watching out for interactions. Because I think I, I think I, I found it like, well, you know, when I was writing the book, I, you, as you can imagine, I tried to live out some of the <laughs> advice, or as you should do, I guess, you know, practice as you preach. And I think things like uh, conscientiousness, there are so many, pra- you know, sort of practical steps you can take, things you can do, um, extroversion as well. Uh, but I, I actually, I think you can get some interactions if you're not careful, because if you start getting, if you've got some neurotic tendencies uh you know um you can start to get stressed out about you know some of your things you're trying to work on in other aspects of your personality so it's, it's uh worth sort of watching out for all the the, the the dynamics between the different aspects of yourself and the different traits very interesting what about uh the roles that we play in life and how they interact with our personality like if uh we get a a new job or we join the army or we become a parent or something like that you see people they talk about i'm such a different person since x y z i got married i had a kid i started this new job what's going on there yeah well exactly it's one of the you know these big life changes have a huge influence on personality so um one of the most i think robust theories is uh social investment theory this is this idea of you know that when we take on roles that are uh, meaningful to us that we find rewarding and that very clearly signpost to us what is required of us that's a very important part of it you know where it's very made very clear to you this is what is required of you and you get a feedback loop because you get rewarded for when you uh, fulfill those 
requirements, um, then you, you see people increase in trait conscientiousness, and that's called social investment uh, theory. And uh, yeah, some of the other things you mentioned, um, yeah, becoming a parent. Some of the findings here are kind of a little bit confusing because you might think of all the roles in the world, becoming a parent might increase people's conscientiousness, but they, the studies I found did not, uh, that that wasn't the result they got. And the, the researchers speculated that that is because, you know what I was saying about it, be, it being necessary that it's very clear what is required of you. Uh, the researchers in this case speculated that becoming a parent isn't linked with becoming more conscientious, partly because it's just such a maelstrom of chaos when you become a parent. Is that is actually not that clear what's required of you? It can be pretty overwhelming. So actually, you tend to see, uh, at least in the very short term, you know, you will tend to see increases in uh, neuroticism, self-esteem might go down surprisingly, and this is short term and um, uh, extroversion can go down as well again not that surprising because you you know you, it's, it's much harder to socialize and get out and about and that kind of thing um but yeah and our relationships is not another one you know getting married you, you tend to see so you know people's again extroversion goes down uh after getting married um that kind of thing and just friendships and and so on can influence us because um I think what you, you know just now you were describing about the kind of people you like hanging out with because of how they make you feel there's this really cool concept which is pretty new there isn't a lot of research on it uh, called affective presence and it's this idea that it's almost like another trait if you like that we so we each have a certain affective presence which is how we tend to make other people feel um so if you yeah if you spend your time let's say you got a new job and your colleague who you work with every day is particularly grouchy, bad tempered and, and boring or whatever it might be. That is, uh, so they got a very negative affective presence and it brings up, you know, you imagine you're in that job for months or maybe years every day you're exposed to that influence. It's worth being mindful of these things and how they actually, yeah, it's going to shape your own personality. I can see how this would be adaptive again as well. If you get into a relationship or if you have a kid, being higher in neuroticism, being more attuned to negative emotions makes sense because that'll probably tune you into the negative emotions perhaps of the newborn child or your partner that you just got into a relationship with. Reducing extroversion uh, is going to mean that you're less outgoing, you're less sort of seeking uh, which is also going to be protective of you and a family. Uh, I'm going to guess maybe getting into a relationship might reduce openness to experience a little bit as well. Although conversely, maybe you could say, well, now I have somebody comfortable that can back me up, which means I can afford to be more open. I don't know. My point being that like, I can see an adaptive explanation for a bunch of these different things. Um, you talk about a, a challenge mindset and a threat mindset as well. What's that and how does that play a role here? Oh, yeah. Well, I... I think I brought that up in the book in relation to, because I have this chapter on um, the dark triad. You know, you, I know you mentioned psychopaths earlier. And, Let's yeah, get into this... it, Matt. I want to talk about, <laughs> you You want people to to channel their inner dark yeah. triad and utilize it. Talk, talk to me about that. And then yeah, how does without... that relate to the challenge mindset? <laughs> yeah, without fully going over to the dark side. Yeah, but steal the advantages without yeah the negatives. That's what I was trying to... Uh, find ways to do that and yet um so something that psychopaths uh, have did, have you had kevin dutton on your show i have not i had oh his name's going to escape me not keith campbell keith campbell was the guy that did narcissism 
Yeah. Uh, Matt Williams, Michael Williams, someone like that. So he, I haven't had Kevin Dutton on. Do you think I should bring him on? Is he cool? He's very cool. Yeah. I'll, um, get, I'll get an intro to you, uh, to him yeah. off you once we're finished. Yeah. He, he wrote the wisdom of psychopaths and, uh, yeah. So one of the sub traits, so, so there are these kind of three sub traits in psychopathy. And one of them is that what they call fearless dominance. So you, you don't want the other two, um, the impulsivity and the emotional coldness you don't want those two <laughs> but the fearless dominance can be very uh, advantageous and it could explain why some people who score highly in psychopathy uh find themselves in successful careers like becoming ceos surgeons special forces that kind of thing because they, they got the fearless dominance which is in, in a way is like very extreme extroversion like off the scale extroversion and off the off the scale low neuroticism you know they don't feel uh, I, I think kevin dutton says it's like they got ice running through their veins kind of uh, situation so yeah i'm thinking would it be pretty cool to have um more fearless dominance i'd like some of that and uh yeah one suggestion i had in the book is looking into this um line of research which i think kind of comes from sports psychology which is the yeah as you said the kind of threat mindset challenge mindset so try to get out of the threat mindset when you're faced with a daunting challenge to be more like a psychopath a successful psychopath try to get out of the threat mindset because the threat mindset is about the fear of failure it's thinking you don't have the skills to deal with this challenge um it, that kind of thing it's seeing it yeah, it's it, yeah. As I say, it's it's worrying about the failure and the embarrassment that will come, and 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 uh, loss of reputation and that kind of thing. Challenge mindset. Instead of seeing it as a threat, see it as a challenge. See it as something you can learn from. Remind yourself of uh, the skills that you have that are relevant. The effort, you know, the work you've put in in the past that shows you can do this kind of thing. Focus on what you can control because with the, with the threat mindset, you're worried about, you know, what if this goes wrong, what if that goes wrong, and I can't control it. With the challenge mindset, you, 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 focus, you deliberately focus on those things that you can control um, and, and see it as a learning process as well. See it as a learning. Don't see it as a, like a, some kind of litmus test. Am I worthy or am I, you know? A successful person or am i not don't see it like that see it as a learning experience what can i take from this if it goes badly well i will learn from that and it won't go so badly next time dude i love it i absolutely love that that's something that i've relied on an awful lot over the last um two years or so is like the show's grown pretty quickly and i've had to get myself continuously into rooms with people where i go i there is no reason that i should be here and <laughs> yeah trying to reframe things as you know it's either you either win or learn uh, look at all of the relevant experience that I've got. This is an opportunity. This is not something that I should be concerned about. I can control the controllables. I can't control the uncontrollables, so I'll let those go. You know, yeah. all of that piled together. So it's nice to see that my bro science solution to not, <laughs> not shitting myself on a podcast has uh, been borne out in the literature as well. Um, I had a guy called Vincent Haranam on the show. He writes for Quillette, um, data scientist, but just fascinating guy. His insight into human nature is fun uh, brilliant. Then he came up with the dark gentleman, so he was talking about this specifically with regards to dating, but he was <clears throat> trying to find a way to turn the uh, dark triad traits into a um, parental investment protector provider, 
but still keeping some of those elements in there as well. So I think what a lot of people are doing basically is trying to find some of the value that we can see in uh, the positive elements of either psychopathy, uh, dark triad traits, uh, and then trying to ameliorate those so that you don't go, you know, like full Andrew Tate and go completely off the deep end with stuff. Um, getting into some of the advice that you've got, obviously we've spoken about personality. We've explained the fact that it is something which is a predisposition that doesn't necessarily predetermine. What What's the fundamental understanding that people need to have when it comes to actually changing their personality? What are the, the most important principles that people need to keep in mind? Uh, here is the thing. I heard that Christian guy, he said that I can make some changes to my personality. What are the principles that people need to keep in mind whilst going through this journey? I would I'd probably say the most important thing, and I, I, I guess I've hinted at this already, is um, if you really genuinely want to change, uh, you've got to be willing to shake things up. Um, if you if you carry on doing everything the same, the same, if you stay in the same relationship, you stay in the same job, live on the same street, hang out with the same buddies. If you don't make any, like, if you don't shake things up at all, it's very very unlikely you're going to change very much because we are sensitive to these external forces. So I think you've got to ask yourself how far are you willing to go. So if you're not willing to go very far, you need to be realistic about the amount of change you're going to be able to achieve. So being realistic is, a, is another important thing. If you, are, if you really, really want to you know, change yourself, take your life in a new direction, be radical about what you're willing, uh, the steps you're willing to go to. Um, some other things to bear in mind are you need, you're going to need help from other people. Probably it's going to be very hard. I would think it's probably going to be very hard to do it as an entirely solo project. It's going to help if the people close to you are on board uh, uh, as well, um, partly because of these uh, you know, social dynamics that we were talking about. If your closest partner, let's say, also aspires to similar uh, personality traits and aspirations as you, um, that's going to help a lot because they, they will role model some of the, the change you're trying to achieve. They will positively reinforce when you make the changes in the direction that you care about. Uh, so that that's that's another very important uh, factor. I would say it's an ongoing project. It's not something that's done one, you know, a job done one day. And I, I'm, I'm really conscious of that myself. I think, you know, it just we never know what life's going to throw at us next, do we? So um it's a constant unfolding. Pro- I, I, I think the way I put it in the book is it's like a philosophy to live by, recognizing that we're a kind of work in progress. So don't just think, you know, you're going to do a few little psychological tricks and uh, make a few steps and it's all going to be job done. It's, it's more about recognizing the malleability of your underlying traits, recognizing that they're always prone to change and you've got to keep working at it. You know, you've got to, to be the kind of best version of yourself. You've got to keep working at it. Um, maybe just the final thing is, again, I think it goes back to something we mentioned earlier is, um, although it is, there's a good case for working on some of your, of your personality traits to help you achieve what you want in life. I think the research on balance says it, more often personality change happens the other way around. It's more often that we're shaped by our, our goals and values in life. So think hard about 
you know, who do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? What do you want to do with your life? Because once you set on the, you know, that, that particular course, that's going to shape you a lot. So it's worth, it really is worth reflecting on that, you know, and, and, and the path you want to take. And because um, that is going to feed back and actually influence your personality and the kind of person you are. That's interesting. So think about the sort of person that you want to be over the long term, design a life that would engender that type of person to come out of you, mm. be around people that would encourage that person, have pursuits that would encourage that person to have a job, live in a place, be with a partner, so on and so forth. I think um, <clears throat> one of the things to pick out there that's really important is the long term perspective. So uh, I'm 34, right? And I still believe that the thing I'm doing now or the habit that I'm working on now or whatever is just, it's going to be that for the rest of time. My, my ability to do like my hyperbolic discounting is just completely fucked, right? I can, <laughs> just have none of it. And <clears throat> my ability to be able to look at stuff over a long term really, really, really sucks. But the difference, uh, the advantage of doing that is that when you have setbacks, because setbacks are going to come with whatever, whether it be personality change or just, starting a gym routine or whatever change it is that you're trying to do in life, there's going to be a period where you reset back to where you are now and it's going to make you feel like you're back at step zero, but you haven't accounted for all of the good work you've done up until that point. And it is very much a case of like trading a stock, right? It goes up like, yes, sometimes there's pullbacks, but what is the trend over a long term? And this is something only really probably within the last year that I've been able to look at correctly myself and go the number of blips for uh, low mood for not hitting discipline for not doing the things that i know make my life good have become increasingly infrequent and the consistency of me doing the other things but it felt like i was on this same path for four or five years before i got to the stage where i could actually reflect and see genuine tangible consistent change and i think oh, well no surprise i was feeling demotivated four years ago because i was doing the thing i wanted the thing and this is the expectation that you were talking about before it's like okay what is it that you want to get out of life what are you prepared to sacrifice if there is too much of a delta between those two things you're permanently going to feel dissatisfied because you're always going to want 10 and be prepared to sacrifice enough to get four and the six is always going to hurt and on top of that as well, I think to add in, think about the fact that 10 is going to take a lot longer to get to than six or four are going to get to. So, okay, maybe you are here. Maybe that means there's going to be more blips. There's going to be more resets. And over time, the goal is to be at 10 in 10 years, not to expect that you're going to be at 10 within six months. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, there are no quick fixes. <laughs> so um, meaningful change is going to take a lot of effort. Um it's also the sort of thing you're talking about, I think is another one of the, the principles I, I, I finish up with in the final chapter, which is about making sure you kind of um, monitor your progress. Don't just assume the things that you're doing are working and it's all going to be hunky-dory. Uh, so what your those periods of reflection that you've had and kind of looking back over that longer time span, I think is very important because... Just because something sounds like it ought to be working, it sounds like a positive step. It might not be. Um, and another thing is, it it might work for a while and then stop working. You know. Uh, so one, you know, a very important, I think, psychological attribute is um, psychological flexibility. You know, it's it's being uh, 
being adaptive, changing, using different strategies, mental strategies and cognitive strategies and emotional strategies according to the circumstances and according to how you change, you know, as you get older and your circumstances change. Um, it, it, it's a trait that psychologists are particularly, you know, it's not one of the big five, this psychological flexibility, but it's a very popular area of research. And actually a very, very recent study, um, you know, was looking at people, people's ability to reach their goals. And it, one of the, you know, they would, they would, this study was trying to look at like which strategies are the most effective, you know, is like, is there, is there one that's better than others, that kind of thing. They didn't find that one strategy, like kind of willpower strategy was better than another for achieving goals. What they found was most important was having lots of different strategies. <laughs> that was the thing. So you can switch things up, find what works, you know, depending on uh, the context uh, and, and so on. Talk to me then, let's get specific. One of the things that most people are going to probably want is to be less idle and be more ambitious, basically increase trait conscientiousness. What's a way that someone could do that? Um, one of my favorite uh, kind of findings here is that it's not so much about having uh, iron willpower. You know, when, when researchers compare people who have high trait conscientiousness with those with low, um, they've kind of done these studies, you know, where they ping them on their smartphones to find out what they're doing at different times of day. Uh, were they exerting willpower? Were they resisting temptation? What were they doing? You know, what's the difference between these people who have this amazing conscientiousness and these people who are less self-disciplined? And the thing is with the people who um, have high conscientiousness is they they seem to avoid temptation in the first place. It's not that they're it's not that they have ironclad willpower. They seem to be quite strategic in the way they live their lives. So they don't expose themselves to the like temptation. environment design and the people that you're around and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, they don't necessarily do it consciously. Someone who is high in conscientiousness, they don't necessarily, it's not because they've yeah like read a magazine article on how to, uh, yeah, like design the kitchen to put the cookies up, up the top or something. But but maybe we, if it doesn't come naturally to us, maybe we can reverse uh, engineer that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's one thing. Um, there are others. I don't know how many. Keep going. <laughs> Keep going, man. People want to. Um, people want to be more ambitious. Yeah. Um, I think there's another interesting line of research again to do with willpower, and which I, I mean, willpower I think is very relevant to conscientiousness because conscientiousness is you know is about being more orderly and self-disciplined. Um, so there's a, there are these findings to do with willpower that actually people who see willpower as um, kind of re, uh, like the more that you expend it, it's kind of uh, self-perpetuating, like a dynamo on a bike kind of uh, scenario. Like the, the more hard work you do, the more energized you become. People who see, think about willpower and think about effort in those, those kind of terms, uh, they seem to have more will. They have more willpower. They get less drained by uh, exerting self-control. People who think of willpower as you know, you've got a little bit in your in your tank, and you know, I've been working hard today. Uh, at, um, Ego depletion is setting in. Yeah, exactly. I've been on the spreadsheets all day, so I'm well, I'm I'm not going to have any self-control left. So I better go down the pub, and um, it's all it's self-perpetuating. So. It's worth thinking about your mind, you know, mindsets. Uh, I suppose, um, dude. Have you considered? I, so I, I learned about that maybe three years ago, something like that. That basically mm -hmm. your view on willpower 
determines your experience of willpower. That yeah. willpower depletion and the Roy Baumeister marshmallowy stuff uh, yeah. is is basically a self fulfilling prophecy. What do you believe about willpower? It ends up enacting that. Um, I learned about that a while ago, and I I wonder how many people in the world, or how many man hours or productivity or happiness has been gotten rid of because <laughs> of that self fulfilling prophecy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a de definitely a danger of that. One, one of the studies that's come out recently that challenged that, I don't know if you came across this one, where they, they tried to find ev evidence of ego depletion cross-culturally, and it didn't, they came out with no results in India. And then they're trying to, they tried to find out, well, why, why can't we get the ego depletion in, in India? And then they reflected on the fact that in their, in Indian culture from a very young age, uh, children are taught about how energizing it is to be to do self-disciplined activities and they're encouraged you know much more than in the west uh you know to do sort of concentration based activities like reading and, and and things like this i think they they even have this kind of i can't remember what it's called but this kind of meditative type exercise they do to do a staring at a candle or something from a young age so they're these various kind of uh these cultural... bloody conscientious indians <laughs> yeah i uh did i i think that that's one of and it, it ties in perfectly with our mutual friend david robson's work the expectation effect right like this is the expectation yeah. effect in action this Absolutely. is it happening yeah. in front of our faces so <clears throat> if all that anybody takes away from this episode is my view on willpower determines my experience of it if I believe myself to gain more willpower by using more willpower, that is how it will show up. And this literally is borne out in the studies. You you get to choose. And here again, the Matthew principle coming in or whatever you want to say, like that separation, the people that believe willpower is de depletive will mm. have significantly worse results than the people that don't. And mm. over time, that means that their results are going to continue to diverge. So I think that's a, a really a cool insight. What about... um? emotional stability then what about if someone wants to become more emotionally stable like everyone yeah yeah um oh there are so many different so it, it, when it comes to this one we can borrow from techniques that are used in psychotherapy um that's one thing we can do so you know cbt uh that kind of thing so you can you can use cognitive reappraisal so um I suppose this overlaps a little bit with something we mentioned earlier, but you know, when you're when you're feeling your heart racing before a scary uh, activity, before a date or something, and you you know you're sweating and your heart's racing, uh, learn to interpret it as uh, excitement rather than fear, for example. That's just one. I mean, that there's something called affective labeling, which is when we're feeling these negative emotions like anger, jealousy. Most of us are not naturally inclined to be very good at identifying these emotions like putting a label specifying it so take a moment pause when you're feeling these negative emotions pause think to yourself actually say it out loud well what is it what is that emotion that i'm feeling it's called this is called affective labeling and researchers have found that this uh dampens down the negative emotions and they they think it's because by taking that moment to pause and identify it and think of think about the you know, at a granular level, what is the emotion I'm feeling? It it draws our attention to the precursor. You know, what led me to feel this way? We're more likely to act upon it in a constructive way. Um, it creates distance as well, right? You know, you're distancing yourself. My friend yeah. Corey Allen, meditation teacher, calls it the mindfulness gap. Isn't it fascinating that um, CBT has come up with 
what was what was that one? Something labeling, affective labeling, affective labeling. But if yeah. you, if you were doing vipassana meditation, it would be noting, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's different perspectives mm. on different sort of terminology, but on the same sort of yeah. element. Okay, so we have the ability for people to um, reframe stuff as yeah. "I'm not nervous, I'm excited." My friend yeah. Bridget says that before she goes on stage. She's a comedian who started late, and yeah. she has a little yeah. mantra i'm not nervous i'm excited i'm not nervous i'm yeah. excited uh the um labeling uh what else give us a, a final one when it comes to uh yeah. psychological stability and mood and stuff okay well final one a little bit different and maybe maybe slightly less obvious is um i don't know if you you know these kind of uh brain training like tasks so there's one there's one called the N back task. So if any of your listeners Google N back task, like there are loads of the letter N B A C H. Uh, B A C K. Got you. So N N hyphen B A C K. Yep. Yeah, yeah, the N back task. Um, Google that. There are loads of free versions online. It's to do with keeping track of a train of numbers or letters, and every now and again you're prompted to recall. The lateral number that was n numbers back in the sequence so it's a kind of form of cognitive kind of brain training that uh trains your you know your cognitive ability to kind of pay attention because you, you can have two dual streams so you get good at kind of monitoring two at once this these exercises have been shown to reduce anxiety and researchers think that's because one cause of anxiety is a lack of mental control over our thoughts you know we find our mind drifting to worrisome, worrisome thoughts. Uh, brain training exercises like the end back task give us, help us cultivate more mental control. So it's another way of getting a grip over your sort of emotional regulation. That's cool. It's like adding in some extra RAM. Okay, so final one, <laughs> I think. Look at me just uh, claiming to know what everybody wants from their personality improvement. Um, <laughs> I think that becoming more confident and more extroverted is probably something else that a big chunk of people would like. Have you got any advice or any techniques that you like to improve that? Um, yeah, there's what, so extroverts tend to be more um, optimistic, you know, when they live longer want, as well, right? Uh, they have better health. I think there's some confusing research around the, yeah, generally I think they have better health, so they tend to live longer for that reason, but they are also more prone to kind of... Um, <laughs> Risk-taking uh, behavior, like jumping off a building or something. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, you get that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, they tend to be more optimistic, so that's one reason they're more willing to throw themselves into these uh, challenging social situations and other things. There's uh, there's a whole there's a range of interventions for increasing optimism, and one of them is called the best self, uh, best self exercise or something like that. Um, it, it it all it really involves is spending some time sitting down, and and you can repeat this, you know, each day uh, to get into the habit of it. And imagine picturing yourself kind of five years or so hence, everything's gone. Uh, as you hoped or your or your dreams have come true uh this kind of thing and it's so it's it's spending some i suppose you, know, you can see it as like a little meditation exercise spending some time imagining oh best possible self that's what it's called best possible self again if you google it i think it comes up um so yeah pre studies have shown that regularly practicing this little exercise helps increase um 
optimism and that's going to feed into your extroversion i mean i would say with trait extroversion more than any of the other of the big five traits it's uh it's it's kind of um it's the fake it to make it is actually uh spot on there really i think the more you um put yourself out there you know join a it, it sounds kind of common sense in a way you know go to some exercise classes or whatever floats your boat you know join a debating society <laughs> debating club whatever it might be something that's going to involve interacting with other people practice recalibrate because if you're if you're a strong introvert you know you're very kind of sensitive to the stimulation actually put yourself out there make these behavioral changes in your life if you want to be more extroverted and you will recalibrate and you'll learn the skill you know the skills of small talk that kind of thing you know be a little bit uh, strategic about it at first you know uh get up to speed on the latest sports results so you can have a chat about the whatever it takes it's going to feel forced at the beginning for sure of course it is but practice does make perfect and you'll re you'll recalibrate there's, there's a brilliant book um by jessica pan something like uh, i can't remember the title of it but she spent a year living she she's a self-described strong introvert she challenged herself to to, to um spend a year living as an out and out extrovert she joined an improvisation club she did stand-up comedy she did like a ton of stuff that's you know if you're if some if any of your listeners are serious about really wanting to come out of their shell i think the more they're willing to take some of those steps it's going to feel uncomfortable at first no question but the more you do it the easier it gets Max Dickens was on the show recently talking about male mental health and, and friendships, but he before that he wrote a book about how improv basically changed his life. And he yeah. founded a company called Hoopla, which is one of the UK's biggest improv companies. And um, <clears throat> he was talking about how important it is for people. To, you go into improv and he basically said it's like a trial by fire of all of the things that you don't want to do. But the point is that failing in an improv class is applauded. So you get positive mm. reinforcement when you mess up, which makes the price of messing up significantly less. And you're also watching everybody else mess up and it's kind of light. And I think that there definitely is, uh, I, I know in my more introverted uh, times, you create quite a high, um, there's a very high sense of pressure and a felt sense that things matter. And if I say something and it doesn't land, then it's a big deal. Like if you mm. say something and it doesn't land, it's really easy to go like, well, that was a shit joke, wasn't it? And like, that's funny. That bit's actually genuinely funny. The fact that your joke mm. was shit is, is actually interesting. <laughs> and so I think trying to, you know, realize that the stakes are nowhere near as high as you think they are, especially socially. Like, I can't remember whose friend it was. Someone's grandmother said something like, um, we'd care far less about what other people thought of us if we realized how rarely they do. Mm. And the fact is that most people are living inside of their own heads. Like, when was the last time that you can remember somebody tripping over in the street or dropping a glass in a restaurant or whatever? You can probably not remember it. And the reason for mm. that is that uh, the fact that that exists should give you unbelievable confidence that you can mess up on an almost daily basis and basically no one's going to remember it. Yeah, I think that's very nice advice, a nice way of putting it. I don't know, there's this funny study, I think it was from the 70s, I don't know if you come across it. I think they called it the spotlight effect or something, where they they had a student 
different students take turns to in it go into a group you know like a tutorial situation and i they got them to wear an embarrassing t-shirt um i can't What's remember an embarrassing t-shirt consistent i can't remember what it it might be barry manilow or something like that I can't, like an I can't uncool remember. t-shirt right okay very for the time it was a very it was apparently an uncool t-shirt i can't remember for sure who, 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 who it was and before the person put it on you know and went into the tutorial obviously they asked them what do you think do you think how many people, people do you think are going to notice the t-shirt and of course people would say well i think everyone's going to notice it's going to be excruciating and so on and then they you can imagine you know you can guess the researchers then actually surveyed the other people in the tutorial group did you notice so and so wearing that embarrassing t-shirt and few of them did so it's this mismatch between yeah we think the spotlight is on us as you're you know like you're saying but it isn't as much as we think it is Christian Jarrett, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, the articles that you write, all the rest of it, where should they go? Oh, well, I have my own website, christianjarrett.com. The main kind of social thing, media thing I use is Twitter. Um, I'm at psychwriter with an underscore between the psych and the writer. Um, my day job is I'm deputy editor of Psyche magazine, a digital uh, online global magazine where we have loads of brilliant cool psychology and uh, we have we publish a new guide every week written by experts on basically how to live better and that kind of thing so unreal christian i appreciate you thanks man cheers thanks chris <laughs>